Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve? the revenge you need, and how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months, between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content, so if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, Part 8 of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. 16. Later, Rebecca and Sally sunbathe on the lawn while Roger and I spend some quality time watching spring training baseball. Dinner is a modest yet delicious meal. After, we drink wine in front of the picture window, watch the sunset, and turn on the gas fireplace. Wood-burning ones are not allowed around the lake. It's nearly 11.30 when Sally reminds Roger about our midnight star cruise. He walks me down to the end of the dock, shows me the controls, retracts the automatic awning, and warns me about only using the low-intensity red safety lights. He also cautions me to shut them down completely when we get out to the middle of the lake, or else we'll get some not-so-friendly words from some of the regulars. Rebecca and Sally catch up to us. Rebecca is carrying the kill bag. I cast her a questioning glance. You forgot to unpack her jackets. Sally says it can get chilly out there at night, she explains. I marvel at her ability to spin a quick cover story. Roger and Sally see us off as Rebecca unpacks some blankets from the storage compartment and makes a show of spreading them out on the deck. Sally takes Roger's hand with a mischievous glint in her eye, and they almost skip back to the house like a couple of young parents who have just dropped the kids off for a sleepover. Once we are sufficient distance from the dock, I bring us to a heading toward the Dempsey's place. We see a couple of other boats in the darkness, some red lights bobbing here and there that grow fewer as we get closer to the shore. Rebecca undresses and puts on the disposable scrubs, then the black rain suit over them. Then she takes the wheel as I do the same. It takes me considerably longer with my cast, but I manage it well before we reach the Dempsey's dock. We glide silently into the empty boathouse check to make sure we have our shoes covered and gloves on, then disembark and make our way up to the house. There is a light on in one of the upper bedrooms. We watch for a while, but don't see or hear anything going on. We make our way around to the other side of the house. I can see the lover's bicycle on the front drive, leaning against the light post. I try the side door, and it opens freely. Rebecca and I enter, close the door, then look around. It's dark, but we can make out the layout easily enough and we decide to wait in a den off the living room. From its shadowy darkness, we have a view of the staircase that leads to the second floor. We take off the rain suits, arrange them so we can slip them back on easily, then find a spot to sit and wait. Once we're settled, we hear a yelp, followed by laughter. First a woman's alone, then joined by a man's. The noises shift to moans, then rhythmic cries of passion, accompanied by the creaking of a bed. A few minutes later, it's over. That was quick, Rebecca remarks in a muted whisper. How lousy of a lay is her husband if she cheats on him with a minute man? Shh, I caution her. 
footsteps upstairs. Stay, a woman's voice pleads. You know I can't, a man replies. When are you going to leave that bitch? As soon as you leave your husband. You know we don't have anything of a marriage left. I'm as good as divorced. They appear on the landing above us. She flicks on a light. We are safely in the shadows where we sit, waiting. He finishes, pulling on a shirt. She has a thin robe over her shoulder that does a poor job of covering her ample breasts. Good as isn't the same thing. Besides, I thought you liked things the way they are. You get to enjoy your husband's money during the week and me on the weekend. I'd rather see you every day, she coos, kissing him, guiding his hands to her chest. He gently pushes her away, taking a moment to fondle her as he does so. You know I want to, but she'll be back from her bridge club soon. I'll see you tomorrow. You better, she warns. He gives her a final goodbye kiss, and she disappears back into her bedroom as he bounds down the stairs and out the back door. We wait a minute before emerging and making our way toward the kitchen. I select a knife from a butcher block holder, one that looks sufficiently lethal. It hits me that this killing will be completely different. I don't have that revenge-driven determination I had with Vitaly. And unlike Cooper, who ultimately died from the fire, it will be my hand taking the life of another human being who hasn't personally done me any harm. I reassure myself that this woman deserves to die, and Rebecca has made the argument to me on many occasions that we don't have the right to deny others the peace we received from Vitaly's death. This isn't murder, I tell myself. It's justice. And as I look at Rebecca and the determination in her eyes, I know I'm right. Sharon Dempsey drove her car over a little boy who was riding his bike. Vitaly drove his car over a little boy who was standing on the sidewalk. She did it while she was legally drunk and dropping off her own children at school. He did it while under the influence of alcohol and narcotics on his way home from a party. She showed no remorse. He showed no remorse. A judge let her go. A jury set him free. This is right, and it needs to be done. Sharon Dempsey deserves to die, and we are the means of her execution. One of the things I spent time looking up on the internet during my sessions on my secret virtual machine connection was where the best places for a mortal wound were. Slitting the throat was a popular option, but a blade into the heart would be more in line with a death blow from a jealous husband or lover. We start up the stairs when there's a loud crash from outside, some softer thumps than nothing. Raccoons? I mouth to Rebecca. She nods. We wait a few seconds before climbing the stairs the rest of the way to the landing. There are several doors. Only one is open. We tread softly toward it. Our plan is a sneak attack. She lies on the bed, naked, resting on her side, facing away from us with a sheet half-draped over her body. I exchange looks with Rebecca. We're ready. We continue creeping silently across the room. When we get to the edge of the bed... Rebecca motions that she'll pull Dempsey onto her back while I stab her. A shot rings out, piercing the night. Sharon Dempsey stirs. Derek, is that you? What was that noise? She stretches her arms over her head, yawning as she rolls onto her back. Rebecca grabs her wrists and pins them behind her head. Dempsey's hair is draped back over her pillow, and Rebecca hops onto the bed and kneels across Dempsey's arms and hair, rendering her immobile. Without even thinking, I raise the knife and bring it down between Dempsey's enormous breasts, just to the right of her sternum. My first blow hits a rib. I jerk the knife back, 
Dempsey starts to scream. Rebecca grabs a pillow and presses it over her face. I bring the knife down again, this time slipping it through the ribcage and deep into her chest, which heaves as she tries to take in a breath. I pull the knife out once more. This time, blood pumps out of the wound in time with her pulse. Once. Twice. Three times and it's over. Her body goes limp. The flow dwindles to a trickle. Rebecca removes the pillow and climbs off the bed. Dempsey's eyes are closed and her mouth agape. We look at her for a moment, half expecting her to gasp and come back to life. But it's clear from the wound that my blow was sufficient. Did you hear that gunshot? I ask. Probably just a firecracker or a car backfiring, Rebecca answers. We have to get out of here. Rebecca nods and we turn to exit the room. A man stands in the doorway, holding a gun in his gloved right hand. Seventeen. We stare at him for a moment. He looks us over, sees the bloody knife in my hand, the spatter across my scrubs, and the lifeless body of Sharon Dempsey behind us. Is she dead? he asks. Rebecca and I exchange a look before she nods an answer. Good, he says. I didn't know if I could kill her. She is the mother of my children, after all. He notices me staring at the gun. He's dead, too, he tells me. Murder-suicide is what the police will think. Let me have that. He motions to the knife, and I obediently hand it over. Get out. I'll take care of the rest. We hesitate, processing the situation we found ourselves in. Go on, he urges. I know you're not burglars in those get-ups, and you're also not the parents of that poor boy. He starts to sob. You know them. Tell them I'm sorry. I'm so very sorry. I hope this brings them some comfort to know she's dead. Ding dong, the bitch is dead. He steps away from the doorway. Rebecca and I walk past, rushing down the steps. We pause long enough to slip the black rain suits on over our scrubs, then without looking back, head for the side door and down to the dock. Rebecca pauses, turns to me with a big grin on her face. That was incredible. No, it wasn't, I tell her. He saw our faces. He can describe us. To whom? she asks. Like he said, the police will think it's a murder-suicide. And he's the only other suspect with a motive. And if he comes out with some story about how he's going to kill his wife, but two strangers beat him to it, they'll think he's desperate. We were careful. There's no evidence we were in that house. He saw us. Hey, it's done. Bitch is dead. Boyfriend's dead. Thank you, jealous husband. And we were never here. It's our original plan, only better. An innocent man died. We had nothing to do with that. And you heard what he said. He probably couldn't have killed her himself. Win-win. I shake my head. Logically, she's right, but I still find the whole thing unsettling. Come on, we have to go, she urges, and grabs my hand and starts pulling me toward the dock. I let her drag me along. My gloved hand is slippery, though, and she loses her grip. She staggers down the dock, trying to regain her balance. Her foot catches in the space between planks on the pier. She falls heavily onto the dock. Her head bangs against the piling, and her momentum carries her into the water. She disappears into the inky blackness. I jump into the lake. It's only about waist deep, but in the darkness, I can't find her. I reach out wildly with my feet and good arm. Nothing. I spin around, searching for any sign of her. 
A fish jumps behind me. I stop moving, but breathe heavily, panicked, almost to the point of losing control. Then I hear a faint gurgling coming from under the pier. I duck under the water, open my eyes, and scan the murky darkness. There is a faint bright spot. I swim toward it. I reach out and touch Rebecca's face. She doesn't react. I grab the collar of her rain suit and drag her to the waterside entrance of the boathouse and place her arms on the platform at the back of the pontoon boat where swimmers can board. I climb aboard myself, my water-soaked cast, making it a nearly impossible task. Once I'm on deck, I kneel over Rebecca, grab the waist of her pants, and pull her aboard. Her water-soaked clothes slide across the aluminum of the deck. I turn her onto her back, position my broken arm so I can use it to pinch her nose shut, then force my breath into her lungs. Then again. I do one-arm chest compressions. A count of ten is what I seem to remember from a CPR class years ago. Then two more breaths. Ten more compressions. Two more breaths. Five compressions. I fill my lungs as full as I can and squeeze all the air I have into Rebecca's airway. I take another full, deep breath and lean over to give it to her. She expels a spout of water into my mouth and nose. I cough. She coughs, too. Violently, turning her head to the side as water comes out of her lungs and she gasps for air. Rebecca, are you okay? Can you hear me? She nods. What happened? She asks in a weak voice. You fell off the dock into the water. Where are we? We're still in the Dempsey's boathouse. Are you all right? She asks, seeing that I'm soaking wet and scared out of my mind. I'm okay, I tell her. We need to go. She nods. I take a moment to reassure myself that she is indeed okay, then untie the pontoon boat and engage the quiet electric motor. I back out, then turn the boat back toward the middle of the lake. I look back to the shore. The lights in the Dempsey's neighbors' houses are all off. Either there's no one home, or they didn't hear the gunshot or whatever commotion we made in our poorly executed getaway. I look back at Rebecca. She is still coughing up lake water as she peels off the rain suit and soggy scrubs underneath. She's okay. I take us out away from the Dempsey's, then turn back toward Roger and Sally's place, going at as slow a pace as I dare, keeping the safety lights off. Rebecca comes up behind me, coughs. You sure you're okay? I ask. Yes, feels like I inhaled half the leg, but I think I've got most of it out now. I turn to look at her. She's smiling and completely naked. Turn that thing off, she commands. I hit the kill switch. You saved my life. You're my hero, she says, playfully. You scared the shit out of me. Shut up. She wraps her hands around my neck, kisses me with wet, cool lips. She starts to strip my wet clothes off, peeling them carefully, paying special attention to my broken arm. The cast weighs twice as much as it usually does, and my elbow is starting to throb with pain. After a few minutes, she has me naked too, then pulls me toward the back of the boat. She jumps into the lake, the water is only about chest deep. I jump in after her. She moves toward me again, her kisses interrupted by an occasional cough. It doesn't take long for me to get aroused, and once I am, she wraps her legs around me and guides herself onto me. It's difficult in the water, but she's determined. Once we're fully engaged, she takes a deep breath, pulls me back onto her, and we fall. I grab a deep breath myself as she rides me under the surface of the water. She kisses me, breathing into my mouth 
then inhaling my breath into her lungs. We're able to exchange a couple of breaths that way and stay under longer than I would have thought we could. I bring us back to the surface, and we both inhale deeply, then go back under. This time I take control. My heart is racing from the oxygen deprivation, which at the same time heightens the ecstasy that comes to both of us rather quickly. We surface again, this time keeping our heads above the water. She grabs me tightly, her legs and arms wrapped around my body, clinging firmly and passionately. We breathe in unison, frantically filling our lungs with the sweet, cool night air. She kisses me again and stares deeply into my eyes. I saw Nick, she says. When I was dead, I guess, I saw him. He was there, and there was a light, and he told me he loved me and to go back to Dad. Her face is wet from the lake water, but I can still make out the tears rolling down her cheeks. I'm glad you came back. Me too. We kiss again, long and deep. Then the chill of the night air gets to us, and we climb back on board the boat, huddling under a blanket. After a brief respite, we make love again, like we used to when we were first married. It's nice, but the passion has faded. We dress and drive the pontoon boat slowly over the glass surface of the lake back to Roger and Sally's under the moonless night. Rebecca wrings out our wet scrubs as best she can and stuffs them back in the kill bag. We discuss weighing it down and dropping it in the lake, but the risks are too great. I'll burn them later. It's a little after two in the morning when we get back. We go straight to bed. I dream about Nick, but this time, for a change, it's not some twisted nightmare. 18. I wake up and look at the clock. It's half past eight. Rebecca is not in bed. I pull on some clothes and wander out to the great room. No one is there, but I hear voices in the kitchen. Rebecca and Roger are drinking coffee at the table while Sally talks excitedly on the phone. Rebecca pours me a cup of coffee and I join her and Roger. What's going on? I ask. Bit of excitement this morning, Roger reports. Someone was killed last night, Rebecca adds. Really? Sally hangs up the phone and joins us at the table. Well, turns out she was stabbed. Who was stabbed? I ask. Sharon Dempsey, Sally says with a note of contempt. Good riddance. Roger says. Sharon Dempsey? Rebecca asks. Oh, she was big news up here a few years back. She killed a kid in a drunk driving accident and totally got away with it. Once Sally says the words out loud, they hang in the air for a moment. She gasps with embarrassment, seeing the echo of our own story play across my and Rebecca's faces. She looks to Roger for support. He starts to say something, but I cut him off. It's okay, I assure them. Don't give it another thought, Rebecca adds, then turns to Sally. I remember hearing about that. She lives around here? There are weekenders like us, Roger explains. Rebecca gives Sally a reassuring pat on the hand. She smiles, then continues. She didn't bother showing her face around here for a long while. Then about six months ago, started spending weekends alone at their house. The neighbors on either side stay away when she's there. That's why we didn't see any lights, I think, and why the gunshot didn't alarm anyone. Apparently, she was sleeping with Derek Long. Total hippie, Roger chides. Guy makes Ed Begley Jr. look like the Sultan of Brunei. Nobody knows who those people are, Sally tells him. Of course they do. Rebecca, do you know who Ed Beagle Jr. is? Sally asks. Never heard of him. Begley, Roger corrects. He looks to me, questioningly. Saying elsewhere, I answer, thinking I remember him from an old TV show. There you go, 
Roger states, vindicated, St. Elsewhere also launched the careers of Howie Mandel and Denzel Washington. I have heard of Denzel Washington, Rebecca offers. Shut up, Roger. Anyway, she's been a total blight on the community. I feel sorry for Dorothy, though. Who's Dorothy? I ask. Derek's wife. After he killed Sharon, he found her husband's gun and shot himself. Rebecca gasps. We heard that, she turns to me. Didn't I tell you that was a gunshot we heard? Back to Sally. We totally heard that. He said it was a firecracker or a backfire. Well, as exciting as this is, Roger says as he gets up, putting a hand on my shoulder, this guy promised to go fishing with me. I thought the fish don't bite once the sun is up, Rebecca remarks. I said fishing, not catching, Roger answers. 19. During the rest of the weekend, we get more details from the lake community's grapevine via Sally. Neighbors stop by and offer their theories. The Sunday paper has a photograph of the house from the street, with police tape across the driveway. The lover's bicycle is visible in one corner. Rebecca and I listen intently, eating up every detail. There is no talk of anything but a lover's quarrel. Some people wonder if the husband could be involved, but the rumors and Sharon Dempsey's reputation as a child killer cement the spurned paramour story. One of the neighbors is a doctor who notices the smell of stagnant lake water coming from my plastered arm and offers to recast it for me. Roger drives me down the road to the doctor's clinic, where he has the latest lightweight fiberglass and resin materials, and even does a quick x-ray to make sure it's setting properly. The new cast feels lighter and is certainly cleaner. He refuses payment and instead asks me to look at his office computer, which I'm happy to do. By dinner time on Sunday, the excitement dies down, and after another one of Sally's remarkable meals, we pack up our things and say our goodbyes. Roger plans on going directly to the office in the morning from the lake, but neither Rebecca nor myself have packed suitable work clothes, so that's not an option for us. On the drive back, Rebecca goes on about all the cooking tips she picked up from Sally. This was the last one, I tell her. Rebecca says nothing. I almost lost you. I can't take a chance like that again. It was an accident, she says. A freak accident. Nothing like that would happen. The last time, I insist softly. She falls silent. She doesn't nod or agree with me or even argue anymore. I'm glad. We've been lucky. I play back the killings of Vitaly and Cooper and Dempsey in my mind. And in each case, there are at least a dozen different points where if things had gone just slightly differently, one or both of us would have been caught or killed. I won't do it again. No more, I add, then turn on the radio and let a DJ and a parade of the top 40 hits fill up the rest of the drive. I remember from some TV series I used to watch frequently that once a murderer has three victims, they are officially classified as a serial killer. There's a club I never thought I would join. Erica. One. I stopped to pick up some groceries Tuesday night after work. At the butcher counter, I find myself standing next to Mikey Manzanetti. How you doing? He asks. Please leave me alone. I'd be happy to do that, but I got a couple questions for you. I don't know anything about Mr. Vitale's murder, I insist. Okay. What about Sharon Dempsey? I nearly fall over. Who? I manage to inquire after a brief, hopefully imperceptible pause. The lady who done killed the kid with her car because she was drinking? Mikey replies. You were up at that lake where she was murdered by the guy she was having an affair with. At least that's what everyone is saying. Yeah, I heard about that. I find it interesting. 
he says, letting the statement hang in the air while I give the butcher my order. Interesting that the night Anthony Vitale died, you and your lovely ex-wife were away on a romantic getaway. And now another person who, like Mr. Vitale, and I don't excuse what he did, it was reprehensible, killed a kid, goes ahead and dies while you and that lovely lady of yours were away on a romantic getaway. My God, has he been following us the whole weekend? Most people wouldn't put too much stock in such a coincidence, but me, I don't believe in coincidence. I believe in patterns, and I'm starting to see one here. Mr. Manzanetti, I really don't know what you're talking about. I've already told the police that I was bothering you. Yeah, I know that too. Think I don't got ears in every police station in the county? What are you going to do? Tell them I think you and your ex go around murdering child killers? Personally, I would, under other circumstances, congratulate you. But unfortunately, one of your little side projects was a friend of mine. Listen, I didn't kill your friend. I didn't kill anyone. And if you don't stop bothering me, I will go to the police again. I have nothing to hide from them. He considers. I'm sure you don't. You're a smart guy. But even smart guys do dumb things. And I'm a patient man. You're wasting your time, I assure him. Mikey sizes me up. I stare him down, hoping that will either convince him that I really have nothing to hide, or maybe at the least confuse him. Maybe, but it's my time to waste. He turns and starts to walk away, but then spins back and leans in to whisper in my ear. You should wait till you get that cast off before you go skinny dipping with that fine lady of yours again. He quickly slinks off, not looking back. Shit. Two. I shake uncontrollably as I pace between the kitchen and the living room. Rebecca finally arrives. Where have you been? I had dinner with Amy. What's wrong? Manzanetti. He knows. Knows what? Everything. She grabs me by the shoulders, holds me still until I stop shaking. Sit down and tell me what's going on. Rebecca guides me to the sofa and has to almost push me down to get me to sit. I look into her eyes. Calm pools of reassurance. I tell her about my encounter with Mikey. She takes my hand into hers. So, here one of his guys followed us to the lake. They saw us take a midnight cruise along with a hundred other people. We came back soaking wet. He's just trying to rally you. It worked. Don't let it. She's right. Didn't that detective tell you to call him if Manzanetti showed up again? Yes. So, call him. Tell him what happened. You're the one who told me we need to do everything that we would do if we were totally innocent. If he really knew we did anything, do you think you would be here right now, instead of in some dark basement, or in some rundown warehouse on a pier being fitted with cement shoes? I laugh at the picture she paints, right out of some old gangster movie. Okay, you're right. He got to me. And that's probably what he wanted to do. Have you had anything to eat? No. Let me fix you something. Give that detective a call. If you wait too long, it might seem strange. I will. Rebecca retreats into the kitchen. I fish Detective Quartz's card out of my wallet and dial the number on it. It goes to voicemail. I leave my message. By the time I finish, Rebecca has a sandwich ready for me. She turns on the TV and snuggles up next to me while I eat and we watch whatever sitcom is on. Rebecca laughs. I pretend to laugh. Thank you for listening to The Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniac's Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it. 
and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon, or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of paranormal mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Rundick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.